When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, a typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. probably heard it countless times before, but here it is again. Traveling by air in a commercial passenger plane is the safest way to travel. Between 2000 and 2009, only 97 Americans died in aviation-related accidents. That's an average of less than nine per year. Compare that to the number of people who die each year in car accidents in the United States. That number is about 42,000. And still, despite knowing these hard statistics, I still feel a lump in my throat every time my plane is taking off. And I guess it doesn't take a psychologist to figure out why. In a car, you're in control. In a plane, you're not. Being in control represents safety to us. And in a plane, you're surrendering that control to someone that you can't even see. What's also scary about flying for many people is the fact of being trapped and also being very high up. Car crashes tend to happen suddenly, which sure is frightening in its own right, but then imagine being in a plane that's 36,000 feet in the air when something goes wrong and the plane begins to nosedive. The feeling of being in free fall, of knowing you're gonna die, of the chaos inside of the cabin. For me, it ranks right up there with drowning and being abducted by a serial killer as among the most terrifying of nightmares I can think of. Continuing our theme of bombings, today's main story combines multiple nightmares into one. Being murdered, being high up in a plane and knowing you're gonna die, and a crime that's remained and will probably remain unsolved forever. And then we'll touch on some other unsolved bombings in the United States, one dating back more than a century. But first, let's start here. It was January 6th, 1960. It was in the middle of a rainy night in rural North Carolina. A farmer named Richard Randolph was asleep in his bed when suddenly his wife shook his arm and jarred him awake. I just heard something, she said. Richard looked at his watch. It was 2.43 in the morning. Then they both heard something. It sounded like an explosion, followed five seconds later by another explosion. Now, Richard muttered, what in the world? He got out of bed and looked through the window, through the downpour. And off in the distance, he saw a bright flash, which flared for a second and then disappeared. He waited for a minute and saw and heard nothing more. 
only the heavy raindrops as they battered the roof. He told himself it was just some thunder and lightning that he had heard, even though this hadn't resembled any thunder or lightning that he'd ever witnessed before. And he went back to bed. The next morning, just after the crack of dawn, Richard's teenage son got dressed and ventured to the edge of the property to feed the family's hogs. And that's when he discovered the mangled wreckage of a commercial plane. He went and got his dad, and once Richard saw what had crashed into his farm, he got into his car and drove to Bolivia, which was the closest nearby town. And this was because they didn't have a phone on their farm. Remember, this was 63 years ago, a totally different time. Sometimes people had to go all the way into town just to get access to a phone. So when he got into town, Richard called the Wilmington Airport to report that he discovered a plane. And little could Richard have known there was already a search underway because in the middle of the night at around 2.30 in the morning, National Airlines Flight 2511 made its last known radio contact, checking in with the Wilmington Airport as they were flying in the vicinity. National Airlines Flight 2511 was a commercial flight that had departed from New York City and was headed to a final destination of Miami, Florida. And so National Airlines Flight 2511 was in fact a last minute stand-in for another flight that had been scheduled to make the same route. Flight 601, which was a Boeing 707, had been slated to fly 105 passengers from New York to Florida. But on the morning of the flight, a crack was discovered in one of the cockpit windows. Because this would take all day to repair, the plane was grounded while two backup planes from the airline's reserves were brought in as replacements. Now, one plane was a Lockheed L-188, and they were able to fit 76 of those 105 passengers onto that one on a first-come, first-served basis. And the other plane was a smaller Douglas DC-6, which absorbed the remaining 29 passengers from the original manifest. And that flight was flight 2511. Now, while the larger plane made it to Miami without incident, flight 2511 did not. It had been scheduled to fly south to Wilmington, North Carolina, and then the rest of its course would take it over the Atlantic Ocean until it reached Palm Beach, at which point it was expected to continue on to Miami. Now, Flight 2511 had checked in with Wilmington Airport twice, once at 2.07 a.m. and again at 2.31 a.m. to report that the plane was flying over the Carolina Beach radio beacon. And then contact was lost and the plane never arrived at its destination. So the U.S. Coast Guard and Navy were already out searching a very large area along the southeast coast, and those search teams were prepared for the worst. And when they got word of what Richard Randolph had discovered on his farm, the search was redirected. Once crash investigators arrived at the Randolph farm, they began sifting through the wreckage, and they found one of the plane's engines embedded six feet into the ground. They kept discovering more and more of the broken up pieces as they went. The search fanned out to a radius of over 20 acres, covering farmland, marshes, and pine forests. And that's when the searchers began recovering bodies. One, and then another, and another, until by the end of the day, 32 of the 34 people on board were found. And just to be clear, there were 29 passengers and five crew members. 
So all but two had been accounted for and all were dead. They were all found strapped to their seats. And some of them had life jackets on, which we'll get back to a bit later. Many of these bodies hit the ground with such force and weight that they were embedded in the soil between a foot to two feet in. The two remaining bodies were eventually found, one at the main crash site where all the others were found, and then the other one, weirdly, was found 16 miles away from the main crash site. Now, that body was found on January 9th, on the third day of the search. By the time the search reached its end, most of the plane had been recovered, and the parts were taken to a hangar at the Wilmington Airport, where the pieces of the plane were reassembled like pieces of a puzzle over a frame made of wood and chicken wire. This would allow crash investigators to figure out exactly what had happened. But at this point, people were thinking the plane, for whatever reason, just disintegrated mid-flight, despite the plane being in good condition, with nothing in its service or inspection history to indicate any potential trouble. Now, what crash investigators were able to then determine from the reassembled wreckage was that the point of origin for where the plane began to come apart was an area just ahead of the leading edge of the plane's right wing, which would have been around rows six and seven. And although 90% of the plane had been recovered, the part of the plane that remained missing was a triangular shaped area around where they believed the trouble began. No material from this area was ever recovered. Based on the clock from the cockpit control panel, the plane had crashed into Richard Randolph's farm at exactly 2.37 a.m. So whatever happened, it had happened between 2.31, this is the time of last radio contact, and 2.37. But they still couldn't figure out what. None of the plane's engines had failed. There was no indication of crew error. It was later found that none of the crew had drugs or alcohol in their systems. They were ultimately able to determine, though, that there was, quote, an initial disintegration that began at 2.33 over Cure Beach. And whatever caused this had sent the plane into a nosedive so steep that the tail and right wing of the plane were wrenched off before it even made impact. This was consistent with what some of the other area residents reported having heard before the crash, the sound of metal doors and windows being ripped off before a loud boom. The next phase of the investigation was to autopsy and officially identify all 34 bodies of the passenger and crew. And because there were so many bodies being examined at once, they were transported to a local high school gymnasium. And this is just such a grim and horrifying image. 34 sets of mutilated human remains laid out in a place that is so familiar and nostalgic for many of us, a high school gymnasium. Now, once all the victims were identified, they were each autopsied to determine the cause of death. Of the 34 victims who died in the crash, 33 of them died from crash impact, probably when they hit the ground. But then there was one victim whose injuries were very different from all the rest. And that was the victim who was found 16 miles from the main crash site. So this person was different from all the other passengers in at least two ways. He was not recovered from the main crash site along with everyone else, and his injuries were not consistent with what's typically found in airplane crash victims. Both of his legs had been ripped off. 
His muscle tissue exhibited extensive mutilation. Debris was found embedded in his body, debris like torn pieces of wire, brass, and a hat ornament. The tips of his fingers on his left hand were missing. The fingers on his right hand were splintered. His body also had multiple blackened areas that resembled close range gunshot residue. So all of this was really suspicious. One of the pathologists who examined him thought that it looked like he'd been killed in a landmine explosion. Also near this body, they found missing pieces of the plane and a piece of plexiglass cabin window that was pitted with black particles. This victim was identified as a man named Julian Andrew Frank. He was easily identified as he had his name written on a collar band inside of his shirt. And in one of his pockets, there was a badge belonging to New York City Deputy Police Commissioner Aaron Frank, who was Julian's father. Fingerprints later confirmed the identification. And what was also interesting about Frank was that he was seated in row seven, which was the row nearest to the part of the plane where investigators believed it had begun to break apart in the air. Now, because of this, investigators decided to look into who Frank was. He was a handsome 32-year-old, seemingly well-to-do attorney who lived with his wife and two young children in Westport, Connecticut. He had a practice in New York City to which he commuted from his Connecticut home every day. Those who knew him described Julian Frank as driven, ambitious, and intelligent, and also loud and a bit of a blowhard. And some even remembered him talking about dreaming about someday dying in a plane crash. Throughout the previous several years, Frank had earned a respectable income of about $10,000 a year. That was until 1959, when suddenly Frank and his family seemed to be rolling in dough. He boasted to his friends that he was earning $14,000 a month and invested $600,000 into the stock market. And he was eager to live his newfound wealth. He moved out of his modest home into a house twice its size and more than twice its value. He also began taking out sizable insurance policies, bragging to his friends that if he died, his wife would be the richest woman in the world. What investigators also soon learned about Julian Frank was that he had recently come under investigation for allegedly running a charity scam. He had been accused of misappropriating up to a million dollars in funds. He was under investigation by the FBI and he faced disbarment proceedings from the New York State Bar Association. And he had multiple complaints from businessmen who claimed Frank had conned them out of money. Now, among the allegations against Julian Frank were that he ran a phony company whose only address was a P.O. box and that he had pocketed nearly 10 grand in fees from a real estate company in Arizona and then failed to raise mortgage money, that he'd swindled people out of $40,000 in bad real estate deals, and he defrauded some businessmen out of thousands of dollars after they hired him to raise money for hospitals in Missouri. Why does this always happen in our cases? And it also is learned that in the weeks leading up to the incident, Frank had purchased several large life insurance policies totaling nearly a million dollars. So obviously this was all making Mr. Frank look worthy of closer scrutiny. It was also learned that Julian Frank had a profound fear of flying and some investigators had to also consider the possibility that maybe Julian had in a state of panic, hit the window in such a way that it blew out and set in motion the series of events that downed the plane entirely. 
Some things that supported this possibility were the fact that some of the passengers were found to have been wearing their life jackets when they died. And the plane had taken a wide right turn before it crashed. So this suggested that the passengers and crew knew there was trouble and tried to prepare for it. Whatever happened wasn't totally sudden or a surprise. Now, over the course of their investigation, the Civil Aeronautics Board, or the CAB, were able to explore and then rule out a wide range of possible causes for the crash. And that included a lightning strike, a fuel vapor or oxygen bottle explosion, a foreign object striking the plane, and structural failure due to pressurization system malfunction. Now, chemical compounds that were found in the area near where the explosion took place were found to be consistent with chemical compounds given off by a dynamite explosion. And based on the blast pattern, the CAB found that a dynamite charge had been placed beneath the window seat in row seven, which is exactly where Frank had been seated. So that was the CAB's conclusion. The plane was brought down by dynamite dynamite that was placed under Julian Frank's seat. But this begged the question, was Julian Frank responsible? All right, when you're traveling, do you ever stress about what's happening back home? Like, did you forget to lock up or leave a window open? That's why I totally suggest getting Simply Safe home security today. It's for top-notch security and peace of mind, no matter where your summer adventures take you. Anything you might worry about leaving your home for an extended period of time has been thought out by Simply Safe. It's whole home protection with sensors to detect break-ins, fires, floods, and more. It's definitely so nice, you know, when you're home to be like, oh, no one's probably going to break in. But when you're away from home, it's also nice to have that peace of mind that there's not a fire, there's not a flood, no one is coming into your house. There's a variety of indoor and outdoor cameras we've installed, so we have a view of all the entry points. Plus, I just feel relieved knowing that it's backed by 24-7 professional monitoring for less than a dollar a day. Simply Safe has given me and many of my listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with Fast Protect monitoring at at simplysafe.com slash Peyton, P-A-Y-T-O-N. There's no safe like Simply Safe. True crime fans, do you have a knack for solving mysteries? Well, it's time for you to meet your new favorite game, June's Journey. Dive headfirst into the opulent and perilous world of the 1920s as June Parker, determined to unravel the enigma of her sister's murder. With each hidden clue you discover, you're not just solving puzzles. You're peeling back layers of scandalous family secrets, navigating through danger, and even stumbling into unexpected romance. Romance. Imagine every scene is a gateway to a new thrilling storyline, taking you from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris. You guys, I've been engrossed in a chapter that's challenging and utterly compelling. If you're like me, enjoying a puzzle to unwind, June's journey hits the spot. Plus, I mean, decorating my estate is incredibly satisfying. Discover your inner detective when you download June's journey for free today on iOS and Android. At this point, it was looking like it. He would have had motive. His life was falling apart. The house of cards was toppling over on him, much like Mark Hoffman's in our last story. And Julian Frank exhibited in his charity scams a similar total lack of any kind of moral compass. So it seemed like he had the character, perhaps, to commit suicide by bringing down a plane full of 33 other innocent people in the process. And he took out those life insurance policies, so he was 
positioning his family to benefit from his death. Also, Less than two months earlier, there was a very similar incident, an incident that may have planted the seed in Julian Frank's mind. This was on November 16th, 1959. Another National Airlines flight, this was flight 967, had exploded over the Gulf of Mexico, killing everyone on board. Now, much of the wreckage from that incident was never found, so crash investigators there had much less evidence to work with. Now, during the investigation into that bombing, they discovered that one of the dead passengers, William Taylor, had boarded the flight using a ticket issued to somebody else, which obviously you can't do now because airport and airline security is way more strict, especially since 9-11. But they found that William Taylor had boarded the flight using a ticket issued to a man named Robert Vernon Spears, a career criminal with a long rap sheet over a dozen aliases and whose most recent grift was working as a snake oil salesman. Now, this Spears man had three outstanding felony charges and was scheduled to stand trial just two weeks after the explosion. So it was theorized that Spears convinced Taylor, who was a friend and criminal accomplice of his, to board the flight with the ticket in his name and then gave him a briefcase containing a bomb, which Taylor, of course, was unaware of. And then the expectation was that the plane would explode and the bodies would either be unrecoverable or mangled beyond recognition. And then Spears' wife would cash in a $100,000 life insurance policy. Of course, things didn't go as planned as Taylor was identified pretty quickly. And just for the record, Spears was eventually located driving Taylor's car and arrested. But no evidence was ever found that conclusively proved Spears was responsible. He ended up serving five years for interstate transportation of a stolen car, and he died in 1969. So it was theorized at the time that maybe Julian Frank may have been inspired by this other recent bombing. But just like with Robert Spears, they were having trouble proving that Frank was responsible for the bombing. Also, he didn't get someone else to go on the plane for him. Now, for one, forensic examination of his clothing didn't find any evidence of trace materials associated with explosives, and none of his clothes had any burned areas. However, Julian Frank's disfigured right hand did contain traces of manganese dioxide, and a sliver of brass was embedded in his left arm a sliver of brass that looked like it was part of a dry cell battery. Now, manganese dioxide is a chemical component known to be present in dry cell batteries. Manganese dioxide deposits were also found in those blackened pits in the plexiglass window that had been blown out. Now, minute pieces of the center pole of dry cell battery were also found in debris that was vacuumed from the rubble. Dry cell batteries were essential components to the kind of dynamite bomb the CAB concluded had been used. However, it was also learned that this same type of battery was typically carried on airplanes as part of their equipment. And in the case of this flight, those batteries had been placed right near Julian Frank's right hand and left arm. And the explosion, it was determined, most likely originated from below Frank's seat. Generally, in an airplane, you know, you store your personal stuff underneath the seat of the person in front of you. So was it possible that Julian Frank was just an innocent victim after all? Frank's body had been found face up, just above the tide line in a swamp. If you'll remember, it was a rainy night when the crash occurred, so a lot of forensic material would have been washed away by the rain. 
But there was an air vent discovered near Julian Frank's body that did contain traces of chemicals, compounds that would typically be found after a dynamite explosion. And then in the life jacket near Frank's body, examiners found tiny shards of metal that appeared to have been part of the container holding the bomb. Identical shards were also found in the floor mats at the edge of the hole where the plane disintegrated. Closer examination identified these metal fragments as being parts of the teeth of a zipper. Fibers and other fragments of material suggested that the bomb had been contained in a blue flight bag, typical of the kind the airline companies used to give to travelers. And there were also pieces of brass from a West Clock's alarm clock, which were found embedded in one of Julian Frank's amputated legs. There were bits of wire found inside Frank's body, as well as in the safety belt of an airplane seat, which was a kind of wire that would not be ordinarily found on a Douglas DC-6 aircraft. What all of this added up to was someone had boarded the plane with a blue flight bag. Inside was a dry cell battery wired to dynamite and an alarm clock timer device. And this bomb was placed beneath the window seat of row 7A, Julian Frank's seat. But while the investigation was still failing to come up with proof that Julian Frank was the person responsible, the insurance companies, which from Frank had purchased those policies, they were deciding that Frank was responsible and they were refusing to pay out these policies to Frank's widow, Janet. They claimed Frank had committed suicide and they challenged his widow to prove otherwise. And a federal court ordered her to prove the crash was an accident if she wanted to be paid. Meanwhile, the FBI's investigation dragged on for over a year, and the case against Frank remained purely circumstantial, and there were also some nagging questions. For one, Flight 2511 was a last-minute stand-in flight for Flight 601, which had been grounded that morning due to a crack in the cockpit window like we discussed. Frank couldn't have known the revised itinerary when he showed up at the airport, which means If the bomb had been set to go off with a timer, as the presence of an alarm clock materials indicated, and that timer was set for 2.33 a.m., it would have gone off at a time when the originally scheduled flight had already landed in Miami and disembarked. So Frank, if he was the bomber, would have had to have reconfigured the timer in haste, possibly while on the plane. Also, it was later discovered that Frank had turned down an application for $200,000 in additional life insurance. Why do that if the objective was to make his wife the richest woman in the world after his purposeful death on the plane? And he had business appointments scheduled and at least two additional airline flights after January 6th. Also, only a few weeks before his death, Frank learned his wife was pregnant with what would have been their third child. Tragically for her, she miscarried that baby a few days after the crash. Now, ultimately, the investigation closed without naming a suspect in the bombing, which to this day remains officially unsolved. The only conclusion the CAB report could make in their accident report was Mr. Julian A. Frank was in close proximity to the dynamite charge when the detonation occurred. That bomb was purposely brought on that flight that day but it is still a question as to who brought it and why. Now, another unsolved bombing death that haunts me took place in the 1990s in Canada. It was Christmas time, 1996. Wayne Gravette was moving up in the world. He had just launched a new bottled water company and he had moved his family to a new home on a farm near Guelph in Ontario, Canada. 
On December 16th, Wayne returned home to find a gift-wrapped package in his rural mailbox delivered there by Canada Post, an early Christmas present. He took it inside his house where his wife, her brother, and his son were all home. Wayne sat down on the living room couch and unwrapped the package, revealing a Domaine Dior Cabernet wine box with something contained inside of it. He opened the wine box and found a Duracell floating lantern flashlight along with a typewritten note. While Wayne read the note, his son Justin tried to switch the flashlight on, but it wouldn't turn on. He tried opening the flashlight's casing, but it also wouldn't open. It seemed like it was glued shut. Julian sat down next to his dad and handed the flashlight to him, which he put aside to finish reading the note. The note was addressed to him, Wayne, and it read, Dear Sir, my partners and I are opening a new business sometime early in the new year called Acton Home Products, and we'll be very interested in having you give us a price on rebuilding some equipment. You did some work for a company I was with a few years ago, and although you won't remember me, Lisa and your delivery man, Joe, most likely will. We don't plan on doing anything until after the new year, but would be most anxious to proceed at that time. We have no staff or office in place just yet, but you can reach us by mail at our new address below. Thanks for your time, and I'll look forward to hearing from you sometime early in the new year. The note was signed William J. French of Acton Home Products with an Acton, Ontario address. And at the bottom of the letter, there was a P.S., Didn't realize you had moved. Had some trouble finding you. Have a very Merry Christmas and may you never have to buy another flashlight. Wayne Gravette indeed would never have to buy another flashlight. He picked it up, managed to switch it on, and it immediately exploded, killing him instantly and damaging everything in the vicinity. It was a horrifying scene witnessed by his entire family. His son, Justin, ran from the room with minor injuries. Wayne's wife, Diane, also sustained minor injuries. There was smoke everywhere. Windows were broken. The floor, ceiling, and drywall were all busted. Debris was embedded everywhere, and Justin called 911. There was a bomb, and my dad just blew up, he shouted into the phone. There's nothing left of him, he said. Packed inside the flashlight was an emulsion-type explosive with roofing nails and pieces of shrapnel to ensure the detonation killed its target. But also, the sender of the bomber clearly didn't seem to care if anyone else in Wayne's house may have opened the package and switched on the flashlight instead. In fact, it was almost Wayne's son who had died, only he had been not able to switch the flashlight on. It's like the bomber considered all the ways the bombing could go. Wayne dies, Wayne sees a family member die, and they were all suitable to the bomber's objective. But what was the killer's objective? No one had any idea why or who. Obviously, the name William J. French was a phony and there was no company called Acton Home Products. Police learned that a month before the explosion, two men had entered a post office in Acton asking for Wayne Gravett's new address. Composite sketches were made of these two men who have never been identified. Police believe that whoever committed this crime had planned it very carefully. The UPC code on the wine box, for example, had been removed with a razor, so that made the wine box impossible to trace to a specific store. Among the packing material was a flyer from a store in the town of Milton, but for all investigators knew this could have been misdirection. A more important clue, investigators felt, was a relatively rare typeface seen in the letter that came with the bomb. 
It was an ornate italic typeface from an electronic Smith Corona typewriter, and it featured an anomaly. Each period was followed by a small backslash. It was believed that this would be unique to the typewriter used by the killer, and that if anyone could find this typewriter, an electric Smith Corona, featuring this anomaly, they would also find the person responsible. A profile was done of the killer, and it was believed that it would be someone with a deep hatred of Wayne, but someone who was not comfortable with direct confrontation. This is a characteristic that's often assigned to bombers, discomfort with direct confrontation. Police and Wayne's family looked at anyone who might possibly have motive, and they began looking at his business relationships in the beverage and packing industry, in which he had worked for many years. And back in 1993, he'd been a junior partner at a business called Surge Beverage with a man named Ed Gaelic. And that relationship ended badly with an ugly court battle over a payout package. And then with Wayne forming a new company with his wife as a partner called DNL Equipment Locators. And he poached a large number of customers from Surge, bringing them over to his new company. So this made Ed Gaelic the investigation's top suspect. His phones were tapped, surveillance vans parked outside his house for months on end. He was given four polygraph tests and provided hair and DNA samples, but nothing was ever found to link him to Wayne's bombing. When he was interviewed by Wayne's family in 2009 for the short CBC documentary, The Bomb That Killed Wayne Gravette, Ed suggested they look through their books for the years following Wayne's departure from Surge and look at the people he had business dealings with. Ed alleged that Wayne had been ripping off his customers, customers that he'd poached from Surge, and that maybe one of those customers decided to get even. It's worth noting that police did look at those books in the investigation and they came up with nothing. Ed Gaelic also insisted he wouldn't know how to build a bomb. And when he was asked on camera who could have built such a bomb, Ed replied, my son. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Sometimes something will bug me and I literally will sit and stew about it forever, making a mountain of something totally mundane. And it will nag at me until I'm able to get it off my chest. We all carry around different stressors, big and small, but when we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. The thing I love about therapy is it isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma, it's helpful for literally anyone. Therapy has helped me so much during times when I felt like I was even doing okay. I have a better perspective on things in my life. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. So just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com dark today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash dark. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off, my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. He said his son would have the knowledge enough to build such a bomb. This is just so weird to me. But then he walked it back and said he wasn't saying his son would do that, only that he could. 
His son was Ed Gaelic Jr. And when interviewed on camera, Ed Jr. admitted that he had talked to police and ended up refusing to give them hair samples. It was also learned during the investigation that Wayne had had affairs with multiple women, which was painful for Diane to learn. She had married Wayne when she was just 15 and he had kept this part of himself well hidden from her. But another angle that was being looked at was that Wayne's death may have been connected to his many extramarital affairs, which like everything else in this investigation ended up being a blind alley. And then there was a former associate of Wayne's who came forward and claimed he'd been told that Wayne's murder was a hired hit carried out by Hell's Angels. Interestingly, there was a friend of Wayne's named Paul Hennington, who himself was murdered on May 16, 2002. Paul worked in the same business as Wayne and used to regularly play poker with people who worked at Surge Beverages. This is Ed Gaelic's company. Paul was found murdered in his warehouse in Georgetown, and that murder was also never solved. But Wayne Gravett's murder, despite a number of promising leads and solid evidence, also continues to remain unsolved. And there's just something about the delivery device, a flashlight bomb, and the spiteful tone of that letter that makes this case hard to shake. Now moving on, one of the oldest unsolved acts of terrorism in the United States took place over a hundred years ago. It was on September 16th, 1920, and it's what's known as the Wall Street bombing of 1920. It was shortly after noon on a Thursday. The lunch rush was just starting in New York City's financial district. Few people took notice when a horse-drawn carriage rolled into the center of Wall Street, stopping in front of a U.S. office right across from the J.P. Morgan building, near the intersection of Wall and Broad Street. The driver then got out of the carriage and walked away, disappearing into the masses of people who were on their way to lunch. A few moments later, the carriage exploded, sending shrapnel flying in all directions, killing 30 people almost immediately and injuring 300 more. Eight more people would later die from their injuries, and about half of those who were injured and survived had serious debilitating damage done to them. And if the dynamite that was detonated inside the carriage was intended to kill Wall Street's VIPs, that's not who died. Instead, it was vendors, clerks, street workers, food cart employees. Those are the people who died in this senseless blast, which remained the deadliest terror attack in New York City until 9-11, nearly a century later. No one could really describe the man who was seen abandoning the carriage. So police really didn't have the first clue who was responsible. And the cleanup crews who worked overnight destroyed potentially valuable forensic evidence in the process of cleaning up the site so that Wall Street would be up and running again by the time the opening bell sounded. Actually, Wall Street didn't start ringing an opening bell until 1956, but it sounded good to say right here. This bombing occurred at a point in American history where the sentiments around capitalism, income inequality, and the new Gilded Age had been simmering for years, similar to kind of where we are now. And the Bureau of Investigation first began looking at radical leftist groups and anarchists. A letter carrier, in fact, had found some printed flyers in the area from a group calling itself the American Anarchist Fighters. And the flyers demanded the release of political prisoners. These flyers were very similar to flyers seen in earlier bombing campaigns from the Italian anarchist groups. 
After the Wall Street bombing, some of these flyers were recovered from the area, and despite the exhaustive efforts of the Bureau, and this was the Bureau of Investigation before it became the Federal Bureau of Investigation, so this was the FBI in its infancy. Despite their exhaustive efforts, the origin of these flyers was never actually uncovered. The Bureau continued to suspect that Italian anarchists were behind the bombing, and they were motivated by anger over the imprisonment of fellow Italian anarchists Sacco and Vensetti, who famously were accused of and later convicted, and then later in 1927 executed, for killing two men during an armed robbery in April of 1920. But these angles never led to anything concrete. The investigation into the Wall Street bombing persisted for three whole years, and a solid lead never developed, and the case was eventually closed, leaving the Wall Street bombing one of the only unsolved acts of terrorism in the United States. But I can't finish this binged episode about unsolved bombings without talking about the 1975 bombing at New York's LaGuardia Airport. It's hard to believe something like this can happen and the person or people responsible still remain unidentified. It was at 6.33 in the evening on December 29th, 1975, that a bomb suddenly exploded in the baggage claim area of the TWA terminal. An estimated 25 sticks of dynamite had been placed inside a coin-operated locker near the baggage claim carousels, and when it detonated, it sent metal fragments from the lockers flying everywhere, which killed 11 people and injured 74. People who were standing and leaning against the large columns were protected from the blast, which erupted behind the columns, while people standing right next to them died. It was later found that the bomb had been controlled by a homemade timing device, such as a West Clocks alarm clock, much like the timer in our first story, the bombing of Flight 2511. After the bombing, there were several warning calls made to other airports promising additional bombings, but these were all found to be hoaxes. And outside of some cranks, no one ever took credit for this bombing. So if it was politically motivated, the message was never delivered. And because of this, it was believed that the bomb had actually gone off at the wrong time and instead was intended to detonate at 6.33 a.m. at a time when the airport would have been clear of people. But all that ever surfaced in this investigation were theories. Theories that the mafia was involved or that it was a political agenda that staged the bombing as a false flag attack or that the FBI willfully obstructed the investigation to protect their informants. Whatever the case, no known suspects were ever developed in the 1975 LaGuardia airport bombing and we'll almost certainly never know who was responsible. Unsolved bombings are quite rare in the true crime history books. It boggles the mind a bit that one who commits a crime of such a magnitude could totally evade being identified. But I think in at least one of today's stories, we have a good idea of who was likely responsible. Now, before we close out, I want to ask if you guys like the multi-story episodes like this one. Answer in the comments. We'd love to hear from you. As you know, Binged is still a new creation. And as it grows, we're playing around with our format a little, tweaking and collaborating things as we go. That's the beauty of something that's brand new, something that's still finding its way around. So thanks for sticking with us as we figure out what Binged really is. And if you have a theme that you'd like to suggest, just let me know in the comments. In the meantime, I'll see you next week with a new episode and a new theme. Bye. Bye.